So, for those of you who don't know me, my name's Cameron. And if you don't see me often, it's because I'm usually up there. I'm the media director here. I organise live streams, recordings, that sort of thing. I also act as the secretary on the, the board of management. If I haven't met you and I can see a few new faces, I'd love to meet you, love to chat, uh, love to learn about you. And one of the first pe- questions that people ask when they want to learn about somebody is, what do you do? What's your occupation? What do you spend your time doing? I know Chris, for instance, is a, a, a farmer. He spends way too long doing that at absurd hours of the, uh, the evening. Uh, if you know me, you might know that I'm a lawyer. That's what I do in my day job, in my week job. And when people hear this, they have fairly interesting reactions. It's not that lawyers are actually that interesting. If you knew my job, you wouldn't be as impressed as probably what you are. But there's this perception that we get, perhaps from the way that we're portrayed in Hollywood or in jokes, for instance. Um, and and it, it reminds me, about 15 years ago, there was these memes, what my friends think I do, what what I think I do, what my mother thinks I do, and what I actually do. And it's interesting to hear what people think lawyers actually do. It's far less gra- glamorous than you think. Because a lot of people think, I think there's two categories that we get put in. There's the category, I'd call it the Harvey Specter. if you've seen Suits. Harvey Specter is this, this fellow in his $5,000 suit, and he'll walk into his opponent's office without a, an appointment, mind you. He'll slap down his manila folder or have two sheets of paper in there, nothing to do with the case, and he'll bluff his way out of it. He'll say, I've beaten you, I've figured it out, and, and somehow it all ends up all right. Uh, that's not really how my job goes. The, the second perspective, and I can see someone down the back there who probably thinks this is what lawyers do as, uh, particularly, is that of Mr. Dennis DeNudo uh, from The Castle, that we get in front of a judge and we just blurt out things, just words. We say it, it's, it's summing up, in summing up, it's the constitution, it's the vibe, it's Marbo, and we just see if something will stick. Uh, if you attend in, in front of a judge and you try and bluff your way, you will get, uh, you'll get reprimanded fairly quickly. It's really important that a lawyer does know their case before they attend in front of a judge. But I think the castle sort of does get it true to some, in some respects. They talk about fishing, but I think it also applies uh, to the law and, and being a lawyer. Being a lawyer is 10% brains, 95% paperwork, and the rest is just good luck. Today, we're going to delve into God's character, particularly as the arbiter and as the judge of the universe. And because we're talking about God's character, today's sermon will be unapologetically and necessarily doctrinal and theological. Now, these words uh, can be off-putting to people. People see it as sometimes divisive. And theology should never be taught outside of the scope of 1 Corinthians 13, that everything is subject to love. So theology should always be subject to love. But as a basic definition, theology is the exposition of all truth about God and his relationship to man as recorded in the Bible. And doctrine, doctrine is the straightforward summary of what the Bible teaches on any subject. So based on those definitions, hopefully we're not too overall, we're not too concerned about using Uh, words like that and talking about the deeper things of God. So if you'll open up to Psalm 50, we'll start at verse 1. 
In verse 1, we have the introduction to God. We have the mighty one, God the Lord. God has given two titles here. This immediately tells us who the psalm is about and the esteem that the psalmist holds God in. He's not the only one. In Deuteronomy 10, we see, For the Lord your God is God of gods, Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God. In 1 Chronicles 29, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in the heavens and the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. What we learn from the outset in this psalm is that God is what's called an immutable God. There's one of those theological terms. That just means he's infinite and unchanging. Theologian A.W. Pink puts it in this way. God is immutable in his essence. His nature and being are infinite and so subject to no mutations. There never was a time when he was not. There never will come a time when he shall cease to be. God has neither evolved, grown, nor improved. All that he is today, he has ever been and ever will be. And it's important for us to consider that definition as we go through the rest of the Psalms. We see this right in the last book of the Bible as well, in Revelation 1. I am the Alpha and the Omega, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Then the second part of verse 1, God speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. See, God speaks with absolute authority, more than any football coach, presidential candidate, Pentecostal leader, or TED talker. And the power of God is witnessed most wholly in the creation of the world. In Genesis 1, And God said, Let there be light, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, let dry land appear. Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants, and fruit trees. Let the waters swarm with living creatures and let birds fly above the earth. Let the earth bring forth living creatures, livestock, and beasts. And it was so, just by God speaking. Arrhenius, an early church father, said, Creation reveals him who formed it, and the very work made suggests him who made it, and the world manifested him who ordered it. John Calvin said, this magnificent theatre of heaven and earth crammed with innumerable miracles. Another example of God speaking is with Moses in the burning bush. And God requires him to go and rescue God's people. And Moses objects, who am I? God responds, who has made God's mouth? Who made him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I the Lord? Now therefore go. And Moses is compelled by this, and we know the rest of that story. Or in the transfiguration, when Jesus goes up on the mountain with Peter and James and John, and there's a voice from heaven, and it says, This is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. Listen to him. And what do they do? What do Peter, James and John do? They immediately fall on the ground and they're terrified. See, God speaking is powerful beyond our comprehension. Now turning to verse 3, our God comes, he does not keep silenced. So nothing compelled God to create the world. He made the world out of his absolute free choice of his will. And he chose to spoke it in order to create the universe. But God is not a momentary creator. 
He's not someone who just created the world and then stepped away. In Calvin's Institutes, Calvin says, we see the presence of divine power shining as much in the continuing state of the universe as in its inception. In the earlier verse, verse 3, out of Zion, God shines forth. God is watchful, he's effective, he's active, he's engaged in ceaseless activity. God does not sit in idleness. Nothing takes place without his deliberation. He's the keeper of the keys. He governs all events. B.B. Warfield put it this way, the Calvinist in a word is the man who sees God, God in nature, God in history, God in grace. Everywhere he sees God in his mighty stepping, everywhere he feels the working of his mighty arm and throbbing of his mighty heart. It's important to note that God does not keep silent He is forever at work, and we'll see this also in his judgment in a moment. Verse 4, he calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge his people. This is a court case now where the entire universe can't help but attend. In November last year, we probably had the most important court case in American history since the O.J. Simpson trial. It was a court case, you may have heard of it, court case of a 17-year-old boy, Kyle Rittenhouse. And it was broadcast everywhere. Now, I, I, had, I, I chopped my sermon right back, so I had a fair commentary on this case, but I, I'll just make one note. And, and the note was that it was quite clear during this court case that the prosecution had manufactured a narrative that didn't match the evidence. And there was a lot of evidence, a lot of video footage, and, and they were trying to get this, this he was 18 at the, at the time of the, the, um, the court case, and they were trying to charge him with a number of charges, including double, uh, double homicide, and he was pleading self-defence. And in the case, the prosecution led a number of evidence and left out a number of witnesses that suggested that they didn't believe the truth of what they were putting forward. Now, at the end of the court case... Uh, after all the parties rested, it went for 11 days. The, the jury, they, they sequestered for three and a half days and they came back with a not guilty on all counts. Now, not guilty is not the same as innocent and it's important that we see that definition. All it's saying is that on the balance, on, on, the, on the probable evidence, uh, that there wasn't sufficient grounds to find him guilty. Well, because this was such a highly publicised case, the reactions uh, from many, including a lot of celebrities, they were incensed. Some of the comments, on t- mostly on Twitter, tell me again that they're not two kinds of justice in America. I've lost the definition of right and wrong. I weep for this country. No justice, none. This mis- miscarriage of justice today is enraging. What even are laws, anyway? The outcome based on a criminal perspective, was entirely correct. Now, whether or not you agree with the law is another thing, but the, the way it was adjudicated in this case was correct. Uh, the prosecution hadn't in any way demonstrated that Rittenhouse had not acted in self-defence. But the celebrities blamed the judge. They said he'd been partial to the defendant and that he'd not allowed a fair trial. You can watch the whole trial. It's still available on YouTube, on various video court circuits, 
that sort of thing. And during the trial, one of the ones that I watched, there was a commentary channel, and it was a, legal, a number of legal experts sitting together watching the trial in real time and commentating about it. And, and this, these would go for about seven or eight hours each day. And the amount of hits that was happening on these, on these threads, there was, there was up, up to a million people watching in, in any one day. I wonder what tomorrow will be with the Federal Circuit Court and Novak Djokovic. We're going to see uh, that that's available to be watched live. I wonder how many thousands of people will watch that. But what we see in this verse is that all pales in comparison to what we see. God will bring everyone, everyone who was, who is, and who is to come to this courtroom. It's literally the event that you can't miss. And how does he bring everyone? Well, again, he brings them by speaking. Turning to verse 5. Gather to me my faithful ones who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. One of the chief pillars of the Reformed faith is what's called covenantalism. We believe that in Genesis 17, God made the old covenant with Abraham and his offsprings. And through the ages, God has kept that old covenant at all times, even times of severe trials, even when they were in slavery in Egypt. He led them to the promised land. He continues to be faithful even when Israel was not. And we see many examples of that in the Old Testament. And to this end, the covenant included the Torah, which was the law. Deuteronomy 28, And if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. And many times, the Israelites abandoned God and replaced him with idols. And we see this particularly keenly in the first Bible reading we read, Matthew 27. Again, we have a very public trial. Anyone from the public can come and attend and see Jesus on trial. We have Jesus there. He's the innocent. We know that. In Luke 23, Pilate says, I have found no guilt in you deserving death. And he's silent. Jesus is silent for the most part. There's a couple of times which we'll discuss. But for the most part, he's silent about it from his accusers. And when Pilate questions him, he just remains silent. Then we have Pontius Pilate, the judge. He's the Roman governor. For many, many years, people thought he didn't exist because there was no archaeological evidence. In 1961, they found some and they've continued to compile evidence. So we know a little bit about Pontius Pilate and his reign in the, in the region. He was typically sent in to deal with types of minor insurrections and insurgencies. This was a type of thing that Israel was prone to do against the Roman occupiers. The thing is, sometimes I think we get a, a, an opinion about Pilate that he's a nice man, but history tells us that he's actually a very vicious and dangerous man, somebody who would probably fit quite well in the Game of Thrones universe. And so much so that there are historical documents showing that Pilate was actually called back to Rome after his governorship to give account on the brutality of his rulership. Even Rome, who'd sent him to deal with this, were disturbed by the way he acted. But in this series of events, we can see that Pilate is circumspect, almost concerned. He's he's unsure about what's happening here. I think Jesus has thrown him for a loop. 
And so he tries to absolve himself. I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourself. But he's not a partial or just judge. He knows that that Jesus has done no evil. And he knows he's innocent. And yet, in the end, to appease the crowd, he decides to condemn Jesus to death. Then we have Barabbas. He's a notorious criminal and prisoner. In the other Gospels, we know that he's described as a robber and a murderer. And the chief priests and the elders are there. They're the prosecutors. But at some point, their role switches and they become members of the jury, which is the crowd. And they stir up the crowd. They incense the crowd to release Barabbas and to condemn Jesus. Much like the prosecutors in the Rittenhouse case, the chief priests do not seek to provide a true account of events. They have one goal and one goal only, to rid themselves of the nuisance Jesus. The chief priests despised Jesus so much, they'd rather see a murderer released in his place. And they're perfectly happy to stir up dissension and tell lies to the crowd to make that happen. As that tweet said before from LeVar Burton, tell me again there are not two kinds of justice in Israel. In Matthew 27, we see that God's covenant people have turned on him. And we'll see later on the consequences for breaking that covenant. Turning to verse 6, the heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is judge. So now we're in the eternal courtroom. And why is God the judge? Well, he's the judge for a number of reasons. Because he alone is the creator of mankind. In Romans 9, we see... Uh, Paul says, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honourable use and one for dishonourable use? Beyond that, we know that God is light, 1 John 1, 5. God alone honours his law, Isaiah 42. God alone is just, Romans 7. God alone is righteous. Psalm 11. And God alone, specifically, is sovereign. He alone has the power to call all to his courtroom. In court, when a judge enters the room, the bailiff or the associate will yell, silence, all stand. And everybody stands, observes, and waits until the judge is seated. I remember early on in my legal career, going back several years now, I was at the Federal Circuit Court in a family law matter. And I was at the bar table. And this is, this is a matter of protocol. I left the bar table without the permission of the judge. She was incensed. She called me back. She gave me a, uh, a big telling off. I never did it again. Um, that's the level of protocol expected of a human judge. And if that's what's expected of a fallible human judge, then how much more should we give respect to the master of the universe who is compelled all to attend. Turning to verses 9 to 15. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your fold, for every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle of a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all their moos in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of the bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. 
See, these verses get to the heart of what we're seeing with the Israelite nation, both here and what we see with the chief priests and the elders. This is self-righteousness. God doesn't need it. You see, God is self-sufficient. That's called the aseity of God. He's self-sufficient. Nothing outside his nature that he needs. See, man struggles with this concept because we're the opposite of self-sufficient in virtually all aspects of our life. God in these verses is declaring that he has no need for the religious observance that is skin deep. He's, after all, the creator of all. All the animals they wish to sacrifice, he created them. And he sustains the whole universe. Jesus says in Matthew's Gospel, when he's talking about the Israelite nation, and do not presume to say to yourself, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children of Abraham. This is a warning for the Israelite nation. You may by appearance be pious and observe the functions of the law, but if in your heart you have enmity with God, if you are self-righteous, then your religious works, your sacrifices are in vain. So now let's look at some of the responses to God's authority, his sovereignty, his judgment. Psalm fifty seventeen, You hate discipline and you cast my words behind you. See, our hearts naturally oppose God's sovereignty, and they have from the start. Remember the serpent? Did God really say? We bought that hook, line, and sinker, and through Adam we immediately broke God's law. Romans 5, sin came into the world through one man, and sin has remained ever since. You may not have heard of a, a man by the name of Karl Pans Ram. And that's fine if you haven't. He's one of the most notorious serial killers in American history. He's rather despicable beyond belief. And his autobiography, which I bought, it's not a long biography. I bought it on Amazon. It's about 20 pages. And he wrote it just weeks before he was, uh, he was executed. And he said the following, In my lifetime I've murdered 21 human beings. I've committed thousands of burglaries, robberies, larcenies, arsons. And last but not least, I've committed sodomy on more than a thousand human beings. For all these things, I'm not the least bit sorry. I have no conscience, so that does not worry me. I don't believe in man, God, the devil. I hate the whole human race, including myself. I've lived 36 years in this world, and soon I expect to leave it. All that I leave behind me is smoke, death, desolation, and damnation. And as a child, he went to a reform school in the south of America, during which time he professed to have discovered this so-called Christians who taught him nothing but hypocrisy. And he attests that this hypocrisy led him to an indelible, had an indelible impact on the wickedness that he would perform later on. In Matthew 27, we see the chief hypocrisy, which is the chief priests and the elders. See, how was Barabbas released? Well, we know that there was established a customary pardon before the feast of Passover. Now, what was the Passover? This is at the center of God's old covenant with Israel. At the crescendo of the Exodus, the Israelites took a lamb without blemish. They slaughtered it and painted its blood onto their doors. And by doing so, they avoided the judgment of God that he exacted on the gods and people of Israel, uh, Egypt. And the day was to be celebrated thereafter for the Israelites being set apart as God's people. 
And now you have the Israelite religious leaders and the experts in the law, and they're abusing that covenantal tradition to release Barabbas and condemn Jesus. See, God's judgment in Psalm 50 is first and foremost directed at his covenantal people. Verse 4, he calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he might judge his people. Gather to me my faithful ones who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. God established a covenant with Israel. God is their lawgiver. Here, here we have a people who had been waiting, waiting, waiting for their deliverer. The chief priests and the experts were, and the elders were experts on the Torah. They had it completely recited. They knew that God gave them the law as part of the covenant of Abraham's offspring. And yet when the time comes and the rubber hits the road, what do they do? Well, they appeal to the Roman law. John 19.15 We have no king but Caesar. They make a mockery of God's covenant and their hypocrisy brings condemnation. Paul says in Romans 2, You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. Peter in Acts 3, But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. Psalm fifty, sixteen. What right have you to recite my statutes or take my covenant on your lips? You see, this is what it looks like to have theology, but not, not understand it. It makes you, as 1 Corinthians 13 says, a noisy gong. Theology, which is the meditation on God, should result in informing our minds as well as shaping our lives. It's not just a set of rules that we religiously follow so that we can get to the end of our lives and say, I've done more good than bad. The scales are already broken. We can't work our way to salvation, particularly if we are covenant breakers. Another response to to God's authority we see in verse 22. You have forgotten God. See, God is long-suffering in bringing his judgment. Samuel Willard, a Puritan, said, Sin is contrary to the holy nature of God, and therefore he might justly break forth in fury upon the least sin committed. But patience moderates his anger, so that he withholds the deserved punishment. And for this reason it is that sinners die not upon the spot. Psalm 145, The Lord is gracious and merciful, so to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Romans 2, We know what we are doing is wrong, but we ignore the law, believing it won't have any impact on us. See, we abuse God's patience and claim ignorance of the law. Well, criminal law 101, ignorance of the law will not entitle you to avoid the consequences of breaking it. This means our past inequities will come back to haunt us. I'm going to read a very brief excerpt of a letter from a daughter talking about her, her father. The father I know, I know and love is a good person. He's witty, humorous, kind and intelligent. He has all the qualities of a good parent, role model and friend. He has shown unconditional love for me and my daughters all of our lives. And this, this letter goes on for some pages in the same vein. Without context, sounds like a loving, doting father. But at the end of the day, it's just a facade. This was written by, uh, about a man named Joseph D'Angelo. Now you might know of him because he was in the news in the last couple of years. He was, he was what was known as the Golden State Killer. In the 70s and 80s, he exacted great terror in America. And in 1986, he disappeared. 
And we, we didn't hear from him for 32 years. And then through some DNA sequencing and, and um, using uh, some, some websites, they were able to track down through the DNA that had been left on the scene, they will be able to track him down. See, this was a man who believed he could hide from his past indiscretions. But they caught up to him eventually. In the Rittenhouse case, the case from last year, there was abundance of video evidence. Everyone, there were thousands of people out at these protest riots and they all had their cameras on their phones. And that's, that's atypical. Typically, in, uh, we're, we're taught that there's not going to be that evidence. Usually in most of my matters, it comes down to a he said, she said sort of dispute. Rarely do you have as many jigsaw puzzle pieces uh, which can corroborate witness statements as in the Rittenhouse case. But see, God is much more powerful than any human police force in the world. He doesn't require cameras to review our indiscretions. He sees all and he judges all. And our sins shall follow us into eternity. There's no statue of limitations. You might think you got away with something that the police didn't get you for, but we cannot run from judgment. We cannot hide what we've done. Another response to God's authority. Often we might seek to trick to bring God to trial. Richard Dawkins in The God Delusion, not that he believes in God, but if he did, he said, God is a vindictive, bloodthirsty, adjective, 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 capriciously malevolent bully. There's a whole raft of things that he calls God. But what happens when we put God on trial? Well, we saw this last year when we went through Job. Job, at the end, after all the trials, and he he listens to all his friends, he he accuses God, and God responds, shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. What's Job's response? I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. There's no judge but God. Job knows that he cannot come to trial with God. And finally, another response. We seek to obfuscate the truth. We seek to hide it, diminish it, make it grey, not black and white. This can be a lawyer's favourite thing to do. Harvey Specter from Suits once said, the law is the law, the truth is subjective. But it's not just lawyers who try and confuse the truth or don't understand the truth. John 18, one of the few interactions we see where Jesus talks to Pilate, for this purpose I was born and for this purpose I've come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. What does Pilate do? He scoffs. He says, what is truth? So what's the problem with denying that there is truth? Well, we cannot hide our hearts from God. When Kyle Rittenhouse pleaded self-defense in his criminal trial in Wisconsin, the legal question at hand was, did he reasonably believe that mortal force was necessary to protect himself from imminent death or great bodily harm? We can only speculate as to whether Kyle legitimately believed that. We cannot pro- properly determine his, what's called his mens rea, his criminal intent at the time of the shootings. But God can. Romans 2.16, God judges the secrets of man. We cannot hide our sins from an, an omniscient God. So then ultimately what occurs? Well, there's a final public judgment. And man cannot escape that God's law has been printed on his nature, on his heart, and that God will judge all mankind. We see this in many verses. Ezekiel 25, 17. 
I will exact great vengeance on them with wrathful rebukes. Then they will know that I am the Lord when I lay my vengeance upon them. That's a very popular verse. You may recall it was used in Pulp Fiction by Samuel L. Jackson. I know Ariana Grande also used it in one of her songs. These are people who aren't Christians who know what's coming. They've been told. Acts 17.30, Paul is at the Areopagus. He's surrounded by philosophers in Athens. The intellects of, of the day, they're making fun of the Christian faith. And Paul says to them, the time of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. A.W. Pink says, Here is terror for the wicked. Those who defy him, break his laws, have no concern for his glory, but their lives live their lives as though he does not exist, must not suppose that when at the last they shall cry out to him for mercy, he will alter his will, revoke his word, and rescind his awful threatenings. God will not deny himself to gratify their lusts. God is holy, unchangingly so. Therefore God hates sin, eternally hates it. Hence the internality of the punishment of all who die in their sins. Romans 2, do you suppose, O man, that you will escape the judgment of God? See, the day of wrath is coming and humans deserve retributive justice. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. In the Bible, there are approximately 470 references to God's anger and his wrath. So we can't pretend that God's character does not reject all of us as, as sinners in our current states as at the judgment day. And it's important to know that God's judgment cannot be appealed. This is unlike man's judgment. In the Australian courts, most matters can be appealed all the way up to the high court if you have the money for it. In December 2018, Cardinal George Powell was convicted on five counts of sexual abuse by a jury of his peers and sentenced to six years in prison. He appealed that to the Supreme Court. He lost. He appealed it again to the High Court. And in their judgment, the High Court made the following remarks. It was evident which ought to have caused, it was evidence which ought to have caused the jury acting rationally to entertain a doubt as to the applicant's guilt of the offence. There is a significant possibility that an innocent person has been convicted. And on that ground, they overturned it. But think of God's judgment a bit more like what we see with the Kyle Rittenhouse case. Because of the principle of double jeopardy, the Wisconsin District Attorneys can no longer bring a retrial against Kyle Rittenhouse for those events. Such is God's judgment. His judgment is absolute and final, without appeal. Human courts are fallible. Juries make mistakes, as do judges. God's judgment is without error. His ways are perfect, and his words prove true. So when, where then is the good news in all this? Well, it's in the final verse, verse 23. The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. To one who orders his ways rightly, I will show the salvation of God. Who is he talking about? Well, none of us order our ways rightly, except one. See, salvation is manifest in the work of the God-man, Jesus we have reconciliation to God through Christ. Going back in history just for a couple of minutes, 1516, a man by the name of Desiderius Erasmus publishes the first Greek New Testament. 
Up until that point, we'd just had the Latin Vulgate. This publication was instrumental to the Reformation as it found its way to a young German monk named Martin Luther. So then Martin Luther, when confronted with this friar Tetzel who's selling indulgences just so they can build St. Peter's Basilica back in Rome, he's reading through the, the Greek New Testament and he discovers that what he'd been told, what he understood from the Latin Vulgate was not correct. And it became clear to Luther that the church's promotion and sale of indulgences meant that faith within the Roman Catholic Church had become works-based. And, on, and he discovered that that was counter to what Paul had written in the New Testament. So in 1517, he wrote his Disputation on the Power and Efficacy of Indulgences, which we know as the 95 Theses, and he nailed them to the door in Wittenberg. Go for four years, by 1521, his writings were having such an impact on Europe that he was summoned by no less than the Emperor Charles V to attend the Diet of Worms to answer for his heresy. Think of it like a court case. He's promised safe passage. But at this time, Luther is aware of what happened to a pre-reformer, a man by the name of Jan Hus, over a century ago at the Council of Constance, who was also promised safe passage and then burnt at the stake. But Luther goes anyway, risking death. And Luther is at the Diet of Worms, and he's, some, he's there for some time being grilled by the emperor's prosecutions, uh, prosecutors. Are these your works? Will you recant them? He doesn't have any opportunity to give any reasons for his, his opinions and his theology. He just needed to recant them. He asked for 24 hours to consider his response, and he returns and he says the following... Unless I am convinced by the testimony of the scripture or by clear reason, for I do not trust either in the Pope or in the councils alone, since it is well known that they have often erred and contradicted themselves. I am bound by the scriptures I have quoted, and my conscience is captive to the word. I cannot and I will not recant anything, since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. May God help me. Here I stand. I can do no other. Now, by a miracle of God, Luther is given safe passage back home and he's hidden for 10 months until Charles V is uh, concerned with matters of state and he can come back to Wittenberg. And Luther keeps developing this powerful doctrine of what's called sola fide, justification by faith alone. He's prepared to die for it. He goes to the Diet of Worms thinking he'll die for it. This is what's known as the material principle of the Reformation. The Augsburg Confession says the following, Man cannot be justified before God by their own strength, merits or works, but are freely justified for Christ's sake through faith when they believe that they are, they are received into favour and that their sins have been forgiven on account of God, of Christ, who by his death made satisfaction for our sins. This faith God imputes for righteousness in his sight. Imputes just simply means declares. This is what's known as penal substitutionary atonement or forensic justification, which is a legal term because it's a legal drama. As the elect, when we appear in God's courtroom for judgment, it's Jesus' passive and active obedience which is imputed or declared to us. We're not judged by our works, which are insufficient to satisfy God's wrath. Isaiah calls our righteous deeds polluted garments. Instead, it is the perfect work of Christ that we are judged by. Earlier, 
we sang In Christ Alone. Now, in 2013, the Presbyterian Church USA, and there's a number of Presbyterian Church groups over in America, they removed In Christ Alone from their hymnal book. And they removed it because of the words, the wrath of God was satisfied. Now, many people said it was because they didn't like the words, the wrath of God, but they say their official statement was the word satisfied. See, they rejected the penal substitutionary atonement, that we are made right with God because Jesus took the wrath of God in our place. But see, this is the beauty of the truth that was rediscovered by the reformers. It's not that the truths weren't there before, they were just rediscovered. Matthew 5.17, Jesus instructs us that he did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Galatians 2.16 says, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. In this way, Jesus is acting as our mediator. 1 Timothy 2, Christ Jesus is the only mediator between God and man. Hebrews 9.15, therefore he is the mediator of a new covenant. In legal spheres, we use mediators a lot. More and more courts are pushing to use mediators. The family court recently changed the rules, so you actually have to try and mediate an outcome before you even get to court. And in, in legal terms, a mediator is an impartial third party who facilitates communication between or among two or more parties in dispute. Now, mediators need to be qualified for the job. Typically, when I'm picking out a mediator, I will involve a very experienced barrister who specializes in a particular field of dispute, and they cost a lot of money. So what makes Jesus qualified? Well, we see this in Colossians 1. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he's before all things, and in him, in him all things hold together. See, Christ is the creator and the sustainer of all. He is the how and the why of creation. He's God's he's manifestation on earth. He's righteous, just, without blemish. He's the perfect sacrifice that the sheep and the goats from the Passover were mere imitations of. And this should be cause for our greatest relief when Kyle Rittenhouse received the verdict of not guilty on all counts. He collapsed sobbing into his chair beside his attorneys. Such was his relief. This exemplifies the respite that we should all feel when we contemplate that we have been justified to the utmost. In finishing, I want to talk very briefly about a, a, a person in history named Guy Debray. Now, Guy Debray was a student of Theodore Beza, so you might call him a third-generation reformer. Martin Luther, first generation. John Kelvin and Beza, second generation. Guy Debray, third generation. And he was writer of the Belgic Confession, which we read earlier. Article 13. This doctrine gives us unspeakable comfort since it teaches us that nothing can happen to us by chance, but only in the arrangement of our gracious Heavenly Father. Now, Guy Debray had such a heart for his homeland because the Reformation started in pinpoints in Germany and, uh, and uh, with Zwingli up, up north. 
but it was mainly still Catholic. And he had such a heart for his homeland, the Netherlands, which were occupied at this time by the Spanish. So much so that he was compelled to return and preach the, new, the, the gospel that had been rediscovered, despite that almost certainly being a death sentence at the hands of the Spanish Inquisition. And that's what occurred. He was convicted by the magistrate and executed May 31st, 1567, almost exactly 50 years after Luther nailed his 95 theses on the door. And prior to his execution, he wrote a beautiful letter of comfort to his wife, Catherine. He said, Hence arises a wonderful consolation that we perceive judgment to be in the hands of him who has already destined us to share with him the honour of judging. It's, it's a really remarkable letter. You can find it online. I'd suggest reading it. Um, the joy he feels in the weeks leading up to his certain death. That was a man of faith. And what a contrast it is to the autobiographical works of Charles Ram when he said, all that I leave behind me is smoke, death, desolation and damnation. On the one hand, we have a man who hated the world and God. On the other hand, we have a man who was willing to die for the advancement of the gospel. One was a vicious sinner, a murderer, a thief and a sexual deviant. On the day of judgment, there will be no hiding from, for him from the condemnation of a just God. His belief that he was leaving smoke, death, desolation and damnation in this life will be short-lived. The other man will be the blessed man who on the day of judgment can take refuge in the works of Christ and his sin will be accounted to him no more because God sees him through the righteousness of Christ. See, God as our judge should be, now become our comfort even when faced with our own mortality because God is ultimately in control. In John 19, we have a final exchange between Pilate and Jesus. Pilate says to Jesus, you'll not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Pilate appeals to the authority handed down to him from Caesar. Jesus answers him, you would have no authority over me at all unless I had been it had been given you from above. See, the narrative has always been controlled entirely by God since the creation of the universe. Judas, the betrayer, the chief priest, the accusers, the crowd, the jury, and Pilate, the judge, all of them acting in accordance to their own sinful desires, but all of them ultimately in accordance with God's salvation plan. See, our God is a God of justice and wrath, but for his elect, God is a God of love, a God of forbearance, and a God who is not silent and ultimately in control of everything. We should take deep assurance in this. No guilt in life, no fear in death. Let's pray. Dearly Father, we thank you that you have revealed yourself to us. We thank you that you have manifested yourself in Jesus and that through Jesus we find a way uh, to be right with you so that when we sit in front of judgment, we know that we have salvation to the uttermost. We thank you that you are the creator of all, the sustainer of all, the judge of all, and bring salvation to us. In your son's name, amen.